0: We're going to dive right in because Courtney's selected a very deep reading for us this morning. And anybody is looking at home, if you'd like to get out your Bibles and turn to the first book of Peter, chapter 1 and verse 1. You can dive right with me into the Scriptures. This is God's Word. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Christ, Jesus Christ, and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, You love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are thrilled with the inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of grace that was to come to you searched intensely. And with great care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances into which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing them when he predicted the suffering of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by this Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy So be holy in all you do, for it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on the Father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, from the empty way of life handed down from your ancestors but with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect he was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times for your sake through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him and so your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of God.
1: Thank you oh. happening. We're getting that sorted. I'm just going to do a little bit of adjusting here on the stage. There we go. Uh, what an honour to be able to share with you uh, today on ANZAC Day. Uh, I feel, yeah, I feel very honoured. And if I'm honest, I it actually didn't cotton in my mind that it would be ANZAC Day until Thursday after I had uh, begun writing and, well, Finished my, my sermon, but Emansy made such a lovely connection for us before. We're here to honour people who have laid down their life as a sacrifice for our country, and which is a reflection of of God's uh, Christ's own sacrifice for us as well. Um, as as Emma, May, and Oliver pointed out to us, uh, this is the last week of April. Which means that next week is the beginning of May Missions Month, which is very exciting and also means that since we're not in the middle of um, a preaching series currently, and since this particular sermon will be assessed uh, for, my uni, um, for my uni requirements in my preaching unit, I was giving a lot of leeway, uh, for better or worse, so it's bound to be a very exciting time for all of us. Um, so... I have chosen to look into 1 Peter 1 because our young adults Bible study has recently just begun a study in 1 Peter. And I think that's possibly why it's been on my mind. It's been very impactful to me and I hope that it can be impactful for you as well. One Peter was written by Peter, who was one of the twelve apostles/disciples of Jesus, and it was written as a letter to five different Gentile churches scattered around what is now modern-day Turkey. It was a letter of encouragement written to people who were struggling as outcasts, and it really. Another interesting letter was written around this time by a fellow called Pliny. He was Governor Pliny of Pontus and Bithynia. You might notice that those are two of the names that were mentioned in Peter's introduction. And he's re- written this letter to Emperor Trajan. It's very revealing. Pliny's a little confused about what to do with these strange Christians. So he writes the emperor and he basically outlines his, what his judicial process has been so far. He says, "'I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed.'" For I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserve to be punished. So Peter writes to these people, those being punished, rejected, and executed for their faith, saying to them, stand firm. Rejoice despite your grief and trials. Be filled with a glorious and inexpressible joy amidst your suffering. Live holy lives because the one who calls you my child is holy. Wow. I think we can all admit that that sounds fantastic in one way or another. Either it's fantastic in these words are very beautiful and very encouraging, or they're fantastic in that they seem to be imaginative, fanciful, and remote from reality. What Peter has to say here seems very, well, easy to say, but not so easy to do. it almost feels a little insensitive, a little too optimistic. Those people he's writing to are suffering in so many ways. At what point in between being interrogated and executed are they meant to find the time to rejoice? What exactly about being rejected by your family is joyful? Or being despised by your neighbours? How about the loss of a job? Or financial struggles? Physical ageing and chronic pain? Mental health struggles? What's joyful about that? Suffering. We all experience it in one way or another. And when we read passages like this, it can feel a little upsetting, a little, it could cause us to wonder, how can I possibly rejoice in my suffering? Or worse, what's wrong with me? That as a Christian, I'm not experiencing that inexpressible joy that Peter is talking about. Now, at this point, you might be wondering what a baby like me could possibly know about suffering. And you'd be right to think about think that. <laughs> I have experienced considerably little compared to most people here, I know. And I certainly haven't been a social outcast or persecuted like the Christians that Peter is writing to. But I have had cause to wonder about some of these questions. See, for about four years... From the time I was 16, I was clinically depressed, and I I can only speak for my experience. It would get better, it would get worse, but I have a really vivid memory. Uh, one day, it was a beautiful sunny day, and I was up in Queensland, and I was sitting on my parents' veranda, and they have this most beautiful view of, of a grassy paddock filled with trees and cows, and there's this gorgeous little uh, dirt road creeping along in the distance. And I remember sitting there feeling incredibly numb, but somehow a sad kind of numb and wondering what it would feel like in that moment of of warmth and sunshine to feel happy in that moment joy or happiness or whatever it was felt completely beyond me and then i got angry <laughs> see I just read 1 Peter, actually. 1 Peter and I have a bit of a history together. And I thought, how could he say that to me or to them? Joy in suffering? Was he joking? I wasn't interested in pretending to be joyful or happy Yeah, I believed in God, that Jesus had died for me, and I'd been told that he loved me, but those mental facts didn't make much of a difference. I was still suffering, and I was very unhappy about it. On my better days, I'd admit that I was deeply relieved and grateful to be avoiding hell. And I I think I, I thought... I suppose heaven would be okay, hopefully not too boring being all alone on that cloud, but that was a future thing. My problems were right now. And what frustrated me even more was that upon second glance, Peter seems to be implying that these people, experiencing trials far beyond anything I have ever experienced and probably ever will, not only can and should rejoice in their faith, but that they probably already were rejoicing. Verse 6. How is that possible? What compels these people? And what was my problem? This feeling was also enhanced for me by the fact that my family were very involved in supporting missions over the years, and I'd I'd hear stories of Christians in Myanmar and China and Iran and Iraq in terrible situations and still experiencing joy in their day-to-day lives. What was their secret? There's a Christian theologian, Uh, called J. Christian Becker, or Chris, as he's more commonly known. Chris was carted off from Holland at the age of 19 by the German occupation forces in World War II as forced labour. Chris suffered inhumane treatment in labour camps that left him scarred, depressed, and suicidal. If anyone knew suffering... It was Chris. And here's what he wrote when contemplating on the fact that all people suffer. The point about suffering is not that we suffer, but how we suffer. It raises the question of whether there is a horizon of hope beyond it. If there is such a hope on the horizon... Chris says, then that will determine how we, how we um, handle suffering. For Chris, a biblical vision of hope is the key to turning our agony and tears into joy. And that from a survivor of a World War II concentration camp. So what was their secret that compels them to live like Jesus, to rejoice in times of serious struggles of many kinds? Verse 6, Christian hope. Peter tells these Christians that they're born into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 3, verse 13, he tells them, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you. When Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. For Christians, the word hope can be used to describe our big universal hope that we have and an attitude of hoping to look forward expectantly to God's future activity. So what's our big universal hope? The hope that we're born into? it will be no surprise to you to hear what Peter has to say in verses 18 to 21. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Our hope is founded in God, in Christ's earth-shaking love for us, demonstrated by his willingness to die on the cross in our place as the perfect sacrifice. His death and resurrection gives us a reason to hope and to rejoice in God's love. And we are now his chosen ones, the children of a loving heavenly Father. And what are we looking forward to? Verses four and five. An inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. The inheritance that is kept in heaven for you to be revealed in the last in the last time. We're children with an inheritance from our father that is not of this world. And it is a reward of a persevering faith. Something incredible is coming. So up until this point, mini-me would be saying, Okay, I know all of that. It just doesn't seem to be very real to me at the moment. My suffering hurts. Please, please, please. Do not hear me saying that you should not grieve or that you should force yourself to be happy. If there's anything that I've learnt from the recent death of my grandmother, it is that grief is very natural and healthy and necessary. And being happy and being joyful are two rather different things. But if you're like me, it could be very easy to get those two confused See, happiness is an emotion that results from good things happening to you in your life, whereas joy has been defined as more of a state of being than an emotion. The joy that we're talking about is a fruit of the Holy Spirit who lives in us, and it stems from the hope that we have in the future. It's something that can be found in the midst of your grief not necessarily in place of it. That was my other mis- misunderstanding. See, I thought joy and suffering could not possibly coexist in the one person. But they can. They can. You know they can, and they should. Peter implies that they should. So how do we strengthen this hope that is within our hearts so that it feels more real to us and and so that we can rejoice in the midst of our sufferings? Samuel Rutherford, a Scottish professor of divinity uh, who lived in the 1600s, spoke some beautiful words on his deathbed. With his dying breath, he is recorded as saying, "'There is none like Christ.'" I feel, I feel, I believe, I joy, I rejoice. My eyes shall see my Redeemer, and I shall be ever with him. And what more would you want? I have been a sinful man. But Christ is mine and I am his glory, glory to my creator and redeemer. Forever glory shines in Emmanuel's land. Oh, for arms to embrace him. Oh, for a well-tuned harp. (laughs) I believe that Samuel Rutherford, Peter, and those rejected Gentile Christians saw something that caused them to look up and look out. With the help of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, they took hold of a vision of God's promises for the future. They knew joy because they grew in their understanding of salvation and filled their minds with images of what it would be. This salvation is much, much bigger than we often give it credit for. Peter says that this salvation was something that even the prophets, verse 10, who spoke about it in advance didn't fully understand, even as they search for such a precious thing so intently and with the greatest care. This salvation is so great that even the angels, the beings that Sylvia spoke about last week, who worship in the throne room of God, are captivated by God's magnificent and radical love toward mankind and his purposes for the future. That's the end of verse 12. That tells us something about the magnitude of this salvation that we have been given. It's a hopeful certainty that causes us to love Christ without seeing him. Verse 9, And to be filled with a joy inexpressible, even amidst a broken and suffering world. Yes, we have salvation now, but it is not yet fulfilled in all of its magnificence and glory. A fellow called Peter Yonker Uh, wrote some really interesting stuff on the role that imagination plays in faith and Christian hope. I know, imagination's not just for children. It's for us too. Imagination creates a vision for us, allowing us to hope for the very real and true things that are to come, meditating on them and believing in them without having fully yet seen Obviously, this goes hand in hand with uh, reasoning and intelligent seeking within faith. But I believe that since these truths are so big and so wonderful and so difficult for our small minds to fully understand that God in his wisdom gives us images throughout the Bible as a a source of encouragement that help us to stir up and sustain a hope in our hearts and minds. They help us to orientate ourselves, to look up and look out. And that's why 1 Peter is peppered with visual language of salvation as being an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And this redemption as being bought, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, lamb without blemish or defect, who was chosen before the creation of the world. So Eve's going to come up now um, and play some music for us briefly, and I'd like us just to reflect on some other well-known biblical images. So Revelation 21, 2 to 5a, I saw the holy city The new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Revelation 7, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and tribe and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and the Lamb and crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Anne Bradstreet wrote a poem reflecting on Revelation. Here are a few excerpts. The city where I hope to dwell, there's none on earth can parallel. The stately walls, both high and strong, are made of precious jasper stone. A crystal river there does run, which does proceed from the Lamb's throne of life there are the waters pure which shall remain forever pure nor sun nor moon they have no need for glory does from God proceed from sickness and infirmity forevermore they shall be free nor withering of age shall come there For beauty shall be bright and clear. And some words from Isaiah 65. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered. They will not come to mind. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and I will take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. Before they answer, Before they call, I will answer. But while they are speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. Thanks, Eve. Now, I'm not sure how literal any of these portrayals are of what heaven will be, I can't claim to know that. But what I do know is that they help us to understand and believe certain truths that strengthen the hope we have in Christ. Salvation will be a universal experience of goodness and beauty and peace and perfection and joy for all who love God and know Jesus. There will be a beautiful new heaven and earth and a resurrection and glorification for ourselves and those who love God. Our our striving will end and we will be made perfect and complete by God himself. It will be a place where we can participate and be involved, not just be bored stiffless floating around on a cloud. (laughs) Thank goodness. But more incredibly, more desirous than anything else that we've been told so far is that God will be with us for all eternity. And we will see him as he allows himself to be known. And we will worship him as he deserves. Our faithful and loving Christ will rule in power and glory and we will experience the full fullness of relationship with him. It will be a domain where God's rule and presence is fully felt and blissfully enjoyed. Is that not compelling? to think that things will be as they should be no more tears or pain suffering or sadness only the overwhelming goodness of god we need to remind ourselves of that frequently The truth of such a vision, such a completion of the work of Christ is what we set our hope on. How clear is your vision of salvation? It's worth dwelling on these truths in our time with God, both corporately and individually. This hope also leads to a faith and a belief that affects the way that we live now. That's that we would seek to be holy as our Father is holy. And this is Peter's understanding in verses 13 to 16. Holiness, according to one preacher that I heard recently, is to be set apart for a purpose. We're not just set apart to look pretty, but to do something. He also pointed out that something is only holy if God is there. And God is here, in us, by his Holy Spirit, and he himself is the one who makes us holy as we seek to obey him. As those who've been reborn, as beloved children of God, Peter tells us to live out our time with reverent fear, verse 17, knowing that, that what a costly and magnificent treasure our salvation is through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not something to be trampled on through bad behavior or to be held lightly. We're children of a king. It is weighty and extravagant and incredibly delightful. This hope that we have in the resurrected Jesus by this and strengthened by this vision of salvation in all of its fullness, compels us to live pure lives undergirded by an inexpressible joy in the midst of a troublesome world. It also compels us as a natural impulse to respectfully and joyfully share this love of Jesus and the joy that can be found in suffering which stems from a universal hope with anyone who will listen. After all, it's not just what we're saved from, but what we're saved into. Salvation is intended for a community of all tribes and tongues and nations. This is the certain hope that all people need, and it is the hope that undergirds and sustains our mission. And I'm sure this will become more apparent in the coming weeks as we, as we go into May Missions Month. So now, let's go with this glorious vision of the future salvation in our hearts, allowing it to impact how we joyfully live out today. Thanks, guys.